Father, we come before you just in expectation of how you will speak to us today. Our heart's desire is to follow you and to give you glory, and I pray that this message will help to that end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a status symbol is an external indicator of somebody's social position or or status. And throughout history, there have been various status symbols. Before the printing press, when books were handwritten, handbound, printed on vellum or other expensive parchments, the book was a status symbol. And if you had a hundred of them, you were considered beyond wealthy. In the age of exploration, ships from the far seas brought back the strange fruit called a pineapple. And some enterprising Europeans would figure out how to grow pineapples and very carefully maintained greenhouses. And it could be yours for the price of $8,000. People actually rented pineapples for displays at parties. Growing up in the 80s, I was drawn to a certain show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, where they'd wish you champagne wishes and caviar dreams. And so I'm like, what is this caviar? Apparently it retails for about 800 bucks. It must be good, right? Do you know what it is? Sturgeon eggs. I had a chance to have some. And I remember putting it on a little cracker, put on the sturgeon eggs, and then they had like a little buffet bar where you could put in like this creamy sauce, onions, eggs, kind of caked it on there just so I could say I ate it. It was overrated, right? But people still do that because it's all about about status. And in all of human history, there's these status markers where they want, where somebody with status wants you to know that they have it, right? Because when you have these status symbols, people treat you as if you are more important. You have more, more weight, more social importance. And, and every society has this um, tearing off system. Like you look at high school. Who are the kids with status? You can get status by being beautiful or handsome. You, you gain status by some singular achievement, if you are a tremendous athlete, that gives you more social credibility. And, and if you are somebody with, with status, right, you have the better opportunities. You can date the better people. You can have people give you breaks and favors. And plus, it just feels good to just feel all around important. And so people try to gain status in different ways. Some people are born into it. There's nothing you could do about that. But perhaps if you work really hard and you get that advanced degree and you become something like a doctor, then you can have some status. Or if you get to know the right person and the right person believes in you and trusts you, when that person goes to the top, you're going to go right there with him. And so you look at the disciples they were chosen for the special honor of being one of the final 12. Jesus, who is revealing himself to be the Messiah, the king, the one who will sit on the throne of Israel. He will be the most important person in Israel. And not only that, 
He will overthrow Rome, which was the most powerful force on this planet. These disciples are around Jesus, and he's going to be something incredible. When he rises to status, who's going to rise with them? The disciples will. But of these finalists, for who's going to be the greatest, there is an internal debate. And we read about it in Luke 9, 56 through 50. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a little child and put it put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. You see, the disciples are falling into temptation. Where they see ministry as a means of status instead of a means of service. I remember when I became a Christian, I got involved in a campus ministry, and one of the signs of status was whether or not you were leading a Bible study. And we had this whole tiered system. One, are you a Bible study leader or not? And if you are a Bible study leader, how many people are in your Bible study? How many of those people in your Bible study are going to go on the summer missions trip? How many people in your Bible study are leading their own Bible studies? And how many people in your Bible study are planning on going into full-time ministry? And how those questions were answered kind of determined your effectiveness as a leader and where you fell on the spiritual pecking order. Ministry was a source of status. And what happens to a ministry where the goal is seeking your status instead of seeking to serve? Well, I've heard that Satan can't create, but what Satan can do is he can take what's created and warp and twist it. And one of the great threats to the disciples, in fact, when you keep on reading Luke from this point on, there is an emphasis on service, 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 service. Because Jesus understands that when people are seeking their own status, they understand that there is a zero-sum game. There is one pie, and if somebody takes status, that can't be yours. So where there's a quest and a lust for status, there's bitterness, there's selfish ambition, there is backbiting, there is rivalry, there is jealousy, there is envy. Right? And that is one of the great threats to our church. We have so many people who are so faithful in ministry. The amount of members who truly serve and own the ministries is, is spectacular. But if you're not careful... Ministry can be done because everybody else is doing it, and it can be a means of you achieving personal status in this church. And those who have the status can be smug and and arrogant, right? But those who don't have the status can be jealous and envious. 
And so when we look at this passage, there's really a choice to be made. When you pursue ministry, do you do it for your status or the status of God? Do you see ministry as a source of status or as a source of of service? So what we're going to do is we're going to go after this whole idea as ministry of status. And I got a four-point outline for you. We're going to look at the sin of pursuing status followed by the solution. Then the sin of protecting status followed by the solution. And again, the question is, do you see ministry as a source of status or a source of service? So let's look at the first part. The sin of pursuing status. Verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now that word argument is not a screaming tirade where they're yelling over each other like hostile parties at Thanksgiving dinner. This is more of a reasoned discussion where they are entertaining which one of them is the greatest. Now, they all understand that the greatest is Jesus, right? This is who is the greatest among the twelve. I mean, these are people who left everything to follow Jesus. Matthew left his tax collection business. Peter, James, John, and and Andrew left their fishing operation. And they all did it to follow Jesus. And in their best moments, it was done out of sincere faith and devotion to him. But in the weaker moments, there was this idea that Jesus is my ticket to the top. As Jesus ascends, I will ascend as well. And so what they wanted to discern is who is the second greatest? Who is the first mate to Captain Jesus? James and John had their own strategy for trying to figure out how to become the greatest. They actually used their mother, we know from another account, but we read about it in Mark 10, 35-37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left in your glory. Did you catch that? Jesus, we know that you're going to come back in glory. Okay, we have faith in that. but, But can you do this? When you come in glory, when you are seated on the throne and people look at you and worship you, can we just be to your right and to your left so they're looking at us too? Could we be your secretary of state and vice president of your kingdom? Jesus, you're the greatest. We just want to be number two. I know my temptation when I go to Shepherd's Conference is not to be jealous of John MacArthur, right? I don't think anybody who's in the audience is ever jealous of John MacArthur. We're jealous of John MacArthur's number two. (laughs) Why does he get platformed and not me? Why did John MacArthur take an interest in them when they were in seminary and not me, right? See, that's why it's sneaky. You can deceive yourself in saying, I don't want to be number one. I don't want to be the greatest. But number two would be nice. Because you understand that your attachment to the number one is your path to greatness and you want the favor of that person in front of you. And so all of them are arguing about who is the greatest among the disciples and, and they have their arguments, right? Peter, James, and John has special access to see Jesus raise 
that little girl from the dead. And remember when Jesus was, was fully glorified at Mount Sinai, who was with him? Peter, James, and John. So Peter could say, well, I was part of the final three. And when Jesus asked, who did the people say that I am? Who answered that correctly? That's right. It was me. But Peter, remember how many times you've been rebuked? Remember that time when, when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan? If you're so great, why would he say that to you? To which John could say, well, you know, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> he wanted me up there as well. In fact, I'm going to write a gospel with my, well, not my name on it, but other people attribute it to me. But John, you're way too young. You're way too young. But then Judas weighs in. I'm the treasurer. You think Jesus will entrust this bag of money to anybody? Hate to say it, but I think it just might be me. I'm the greatest. So they're going back and forth about who is the greatest. And Jesus is about to intervene because he understands the threat of this. Now, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, he is glorified. Remember, the Father speaks from the cloud and says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Notice how the Father is giving glory to who? To Jesus. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. He cast out a, 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 the demon from a boy and he does something the disciples could not do at that moment. And in verse 9.43, all were astonished at the majesty of who? The majesty of God. So he did this miracle in such a way that God gets the glory. So you have, have God giving Jesus glory, Jesus giving God glory. None of them are seeking their own glory. And yet, the disciples are struggling with this. And so it's interesting, right after Jesus does a miracle that causes everyone to be astonished at the glory of God, he turns to his disciples and says this in 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about, to be, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. To glorify God, to glorify my Father, I'm about to strip myself of all glory. Now, if you had a status spectrum or a status ranking in the Roman Empire, at the top would be the emperor. Followed by him would be the patrician class. That's where you get the senatorial class, the equestrian class. And they had all these rankings depending on how much land or wealth you possessed. Then underneath the patrician class, you'd have the plebeians, the tenant farmers. And, and those would be breaking down. You'd have the tenant farmers and, and the merchants. You would have citizens versus non-citizens. You'd have slaves or frees. But do you know who was at the absolute bottom? The criminals. The criminals had the lowest status in the Roman Empire. But did you know that there was even a hierarchy among criminals? The good criminals, the citizens, when they were executed, they were beheaded. But the worst criminals were crucified. 
To be crucified is not only to be executed, it is to be humiliated. It is to be declared an enemy of Rome. The subject of mockery and ridicule is to be splayed out on the cross with the inability of covering yourself. It is to have your legacy stained forever. So Jesus, for the glory of God and out of his love for you, is about to be stripped of all status. And here his disciples are arguing about their own. Now Jesus, being gentle, gives them an object lesson. He gives them an object lesson. He brings a boy and he offers a solution. And, and you know why? Because when there is a love of status, there is some real spiritual danger, isn't there? Isn't there? When people minister for status and not for service, who are they trying to glorify? They're trying to glorify themselves. And church is a vehicle for self-glorification. It seems like we have a rash of people who are publicly renouncing the faith who were once in it. And, and what do you make of this? Why is this the case? Well, we know that they went out from us because they were not of us, but why would somebody pretend to be a Christian? Because it can be a source of status. You have a talented musician who's not talented enough to get a big recording contract in Nashville, so they go on the Christian concert circuit. They get a following, they get the acclaim, then they leverage past success towards crossing over to a wider audience. Or you have somebody who was a pastor or a spiritual leader who no longer follows the faith. Well, why did they do so to begin with? They become a part of a community, and they really like the community. These people are kind. Uh, they are nice. They're willing to be a family to me. And perhaps they have some incredible testimony. They were, at one point in time, a, a drug dealer. And then they repented, and they give their testimony, and everyone is just moved and touched by, by the work of the Lord in their life, and so they get platformed, and they are allowed to share their testimony to different people, and as they do, they notice that they get a lot of attention from other people. Or perhaps it's a, a young man who notices that every Sunday morning, 400-plus people stare at the man behind the pulpit. Man, that guy has a lot of status. I wonder if I could do that someday. And he goes to seminary, and he's able to reason really well theologically, and the professors say, you are a very good student. Once again, he's getting more status. And then he goes off and starts his ministry. He tries to get book deals, try to go on the conference circuit, and he's getting more and more status. But then something happens. Secret sin comes out. He loses the opportunity to ever do ministry again. And so in one last gasp for status, he will publicly renounce the faith 
because he knows many people on the other side will cheer that reality in him, right? It, it was never about the glory of God. It was about the glory of self. See, and when you minister for status instead of service, whose glory are you after? And fundamentally, it's not the glory of God. And this is Jesus' indictment on those people who minister for status. He says, how can you believe, this is John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Right? If you are so fixated to getting glory from other people, Jesus says, how can you believe? You're not denying yourself. You're not pursuing me. How can you believe? So how do you know if this is you? How do you know if this is you? Well, here's seven questions to ask yourself. Number one, do you tend to promote yourself? Do you put yourself out there? Do you offer to do some public ministry even though you've never been asked and it's questionable whether or not you have the aptitude? Do you name drop? Well, yep, I get to meet with so-and-so. The pastor took a special liking to me. Or are you jealous when other people? Thirdly, are you jealous of opportunities given to someone else? Why wasn't I chosen for this ministry? Or why wasn't I consulted for this decision? Fourth, are you given to self-pity? When you say no one reaches out to me, is what you really mean is that no one of the member of the inner circle, no one who has status reaches out to me. Five, do you constantly compare yourself to others? You bring a dish to the fellowship dinner, and after three people, you know, three waves go through the line, yours is only half eaten, but so and so's, well, that was taken the first time. Do you find yourself impugning the motivations of those who do not select you? And do you become resentful when people don't notice? Or sufficiently appreciate your ministry. Right? Now let's be honest. Let's be honest. That's been true of me. And that was true of the disciples. This is a temptation resident in everyone who's active in ministry. So what's the solution? What is the solution? Well look at verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. Right, so he, he brings an object lesson. He, he brings a child beside him. Some people speculate that this might be the child who just had a demon expelled from him. And there's two lessons that he gives them. The first one is you serve the least. Now remember the disciples were having a debate about who's number two. Who is to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And and they saw their status as linked to Jesus' status. Right? Their association with somebody with status was key to their own. And 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 people do this, right? Sororities and fraternities, they all kind of, you know, call people and try to find those who will make them look good. 
social climbers will try to get in with the right group of people and ingratiate themselves with people who can give them status. And they are focused on this, and Jesus brings before them a child. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put them by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So he brings forth a child. Now, I want to be clear here. We have a sentimental understanding of children, right? I believe that children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside, right? But that is not how they saw children. Rabbis taught during that time, if you talk to children, you're pretty much wasting your time. Right? Children were on the lower end of the social strata. There was no guarantee that a child would actually make it to adulthood. So the attitude was almost, well, survive to be an adult, then I'll talk to you. Children did not have status. They couldn't give you a job. They couldn't give you any opportunities. There were pseudo-members of society. And so what Jesus says, whoever receives this child, whoever welcomes them, right? Hospitality was a means of showing honor. If some famous rabbi came to town, the disciples would fall all over themselves and say, why don't you stay at my house, right? It would be an honor. You look for people with higher status. You welcome them, hoping that there will be some relationship that will pull you to the top. But Jesus says, if you want this higher status... Don't try to ingratiate yourself with these people at the top, but the person at the bottom. Whoever welcomes them in my name. Namely, you treat these children as Jesus would. That's why it is so remarkable how Jesus had this special affinity for children. He treated them with honor and dignity. He loved children. Talking to children was not a waste of his time. Jesus would be just as content teaching the Sermon on the Mount as he would be wiping babies' bottoms in the nursery. So if you really want status and if you really want to ingratiate yourself with the people who give it, right? It's not me. I don't give status. Who gives status? The Lord does. The Lord is the one who exalts people. And if you want to ingratiate yourself, don't work so hard to try to ingratiate those people who are above you socially. Ingratiate yourself with the Lord of the universe. If you receive this child, Jesus says, you receive me, right? You all want my status. You want me to give it to you? Treat this child well in my name. And if you treat this child well, you treat me well, and you treat the Lord well. If you want status, then serve the least in my name. Then secondly, not only serve the least, see yourself as the least. For he who is greatest among you all is the one who is great. Right? They, they would serve someone who is their social equal or greater. What Jesus says is be at the very bottom. That way everybody at the minimum is your social equal and everybody else is greater. You basically treat everybody else as more important, more valuable, more precious than yourself. 
Instead of arguing about whether or not you might be the greatest, you 12 disciples, your conclusion should be, of all the disciples here, if you were to rank them, I come in 12th. First Peter, and praise God, Peter gets it now. When he's writing First Peter, he gets it now. He says in First Peter 5, 5 through 6, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Right? See yourself as the least, and let God exalt you. And you know what? God exalts humble people. Do you know why? When you have a humble person, he is deeply concerned and consumed with the glory and the status of God. And when they give an elevated position to do that, do you know what they're going to do with that position? They'll use it to keep on doing the same thing. It's someone who's proud is consumed with their own glory and their own status. And if they are elevated, right, they'll turn into a tyrant, right? It'll be all about them. So you see yourself as the least. Tim Bryant, the one who's training us in counseling, would ask us this question. Who is the greatest human being on the planet? Who is the greatest human being on the planet? And remember brainstorming, it could be the leader of the free world, right, Joe Biden. It could be Elon Musk, who was at one time the richest man in the world. Perhaps as the most beautiful person in the world. I looked it up as Jody Comer, I guess, according to Google. Right, who, who is the most important who is the greatest person in the world? Do you know who is the most important person in the world, the greatest person in the world? The humblest person in the world. The humblest person in the world is the greatest person in the world. Right? Our ministry is all about giving God glory, not siphoning it off for ourselves. Now, that's for you who are seeking status, but what about you who are pursuing and protecting status? See, the disciples saw themselves as the final 12, and they kind of back off. Okay, we may not go for who is the greatest individually. We'll just all be content with the fact that we are the final 12. And we want to protect our status. And something is happening that is threatening their status as a group. Luke 9.49. John answered, Master, okay, he knows his place. Jesus is Master. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. He does not follow with us. So John notices a man who's exercising demons, and he's using the name of Jesus. And this man is successful at casting out demons. Now, remember what just happened at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration? These disciples are trying to cast out demons, trying to rescue this boy from a demon, and it's not working. Jesus says, how long must I bear with you, you perverted and faithless generation? Bring the boy here, and he cast him out. So this man is succeeding where the disciples failed. Secondly, He's doing it in the name of Jesus. Now, we know from Acts, remember the seven sons of Sceva? They were 
casting out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preached. They did it without personal belief, but that doesn't seem to be the case here. This man is likely a disciple. Perhaps he's going to be the member of the, the 72 who are about to be sent out. And using the name of Jesus, people who have been oppressed by demons, who have been afflicted by demons, are finding relief and comfort as he ministers in the name of Jesus. And John tries to stop him. I mean, can you imagine the conversation? The guy is about to cast out a demon of a, of a small child, and John says, hold up, hold up. Imagine Barney Fife here, okay? Just what do you think you're doing, mister? Well, I'm about to cast out this, this demon. This child's been deaf and mute, and, you know, I, I, I was going to free him from that. So who gave you permission to cast out a demon? Well, John, I pray and I speak in the name of Jesus, so I guess Jesus does. Well, you need to stop. You are not an authorized apostle. And if you don't stop, I'm going to talk to the big man himself, and he's going to stop you. Well, I'll take my chances. And then you have the dialogue. Jesus, there's this guy trying to cast out demons, and he doesn't follow us. Notice he doesn't say he doesn't follow you. He says he doesn't follow with us. He's not part of the 12 here, and we're trying to stop him, but he keeps on doing. Do you think you could stop him? Sounds kind of evil, doesn't it? If I can't lead someone to Christ, no one can. If I can't rescue them from hell, no one can. It's better that they burn. Right? You see it? You see, the disciples worked really hard to become part of this inner circle. They're part of an exclusive club. And if just anybody can get in there, it's no longer exclusive. And what's the fun of that? They had status because they were part of the group. Now, I look at our church, and there's many of you who own the church. There is a victory every time people switch from the church I attend to my church. When they switch from... Our, my church teaches to we teach, right? That's a major victory. You know, there is an, an ownership that takes place, but what that can coalesce into is us against them, right? A tribal mentality. You and a coworker have been ministering to a younger coworker, you see them come to Christ, and this younger co-worker who just became a Christian comes to our church and then goes to another church, your, your friend's church, and they stick at that church. They don't come back here. Are you okay with that? Or you meet somebody who's new to town, who seems like a solid Christian, and you ask them what church they go to, and it's a different one, and you immediately think, what a waste. That pastor just preaches milquetoast sermons. He doesn't preach like Pastor Dave. <laughs> oh, what a waste, right? You see, this is really a jealousy to preserve your status as part of the group. 
the tribal status. But, and honestly, here's some questions for you to ask yourself. When someone succeeds in ministry, when another church succeeds in ministry, is your first thought or comment about that ministry a critique? Two, do you feel the need to distinguish us from them? To note the differences in their theology and their methodology from your own? Three, do you seek out negative information or opinions or ask for more information to figure out what's going on, hoping for the worst? Fourth, if you hear about trouble in that church, do you think, maybe the people will come here? Or do you pray that God steers them through the storm? Five, would you rejoice if that young Christian gets plugged in and grows in the other ministry? Right, are you guilty? Right, John the Apostle was. He was. So what's the solution? Jesus says in verse 50, Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. If he's not against you, John, he's for you. You guys are on the same team. The enemy is the demon, right? And if he's casting out demons in my name, that's a win for everyone. You think about Paul. Paul was in prison. And as he was in prison, he was noticing the impact that it had on other people. In Philippians 1.15, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ had a selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. The idea is this. The star basketball player goes down. He will no longer play 38 minutes a game. So what is the reaction of his teammates? Some think, we're going to win this game for him. If he can't go down, I'm going to fill his shoes. We're going to stand by our man and dedicate our service and our game to him. Right? That's one group. The other group thinks, more playing time. This is my chance to shine. Some people were saying, well, with Paul and in prison, I'm going to step up my game to fill up what is lacking, to do what he can't do for Paul. And the other think, well, Paul's out of the way. This is my chance to shine for me. So how does Paul handle this? Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Right? He can rejoice any time the gospel is preached, no matter who. I mean, honestly, if there was a revival in Emporia and thousands of people came to Christ, could our church handle them all? There's no way. It is in the best interest of the kingdom for other churches to be healthy and to thrive. If a church implodes and 100 people leave that church, this is what I found. For every 100 people that leave, 25 people stop going altogether. It is for the best that gospel-believing, Bible-believing churches 
do well. That's why you never try to poison anybody about their church. Never criticize their church if they are preaching the gospel. Now, I wanted to give a qualification here. There's a lot of churches in town I would never send people to. They teach a works-based salvation. They deny the authority of Scripture. They broaden the narrow road that leads to life. There are a lot of churches in town that are not really churches. They don't belong to God, okay? I'm not talking about those churches. But there are churches that do have a high view of Scripture. They believe in the authority of Scripture. They believe in the reality of the gospel. Supporting those churches is a good thing. We are actually on the same team. I know I've had a chance to have lunch this past week with some of the, my brothers from, from Life Church. We get together with the brothers from Westside Baptist Church. We're doing a big youth group activity with 12th Avenue. I mean, there's, there's churches in town that we are on the same side. And the whole point of it is not to build up Flint Hills Bible Church for our glory, right? Or for your glory, but for whose glory? For God's glory. The status that we seek to achieve is his status, not our own. Psalm 115.1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God is to be the object of praise. We're not trying to siphon it up for ourselves. To quote the great Ronald Reagan, there is no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Right? There is no limit on the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. Well, I would qualify this. We do care who gets the credit, right? And it's God alone. If God's getting credit, God bless him. So you've been convicted by this. Here's, here's four action points. Number one, seek to minister to the least of these. Instead of trying to grab lunch with a key ministry leader, look around who gets overlooked. Who would not help your brand? Who are the needy and difficult people? Who are those who are suffering? Who are those bereft of a loved one? So instead of complaining that such and such doesn't reach out to you, reach out to others. And when you do it, don't be self-righteous about it. It kind of defeats the point. Unlike these other people, I do it. No, don't do that. Secondly, take the lowest seat at the table. Volunteer for lowly ministries. Take the bottom rung. Don't wait for the better opportunity and say, anything beneath that is a waste of my gifts. If there's a need, and people are in need, and you can do it, serve. Thirdly, pray for other biblically faithful churches in town. Affirm those churches. Speak well of those churches. Encourage those who are going to that church to really dig in and really build up that church. And fourthly, you meditate on Jesus, right? Jesus is not asking you to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself. Jesus stripped himself of all status to give you status with the Father. In the words of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that status, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being the born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, if you want the status that comes from Christ, you must renounce your status for the sake of Christ. You can either minister for self, minister for your own status, or you can minister for the service of others or the glory of God, right? That's the choice that we make every day. In the end, in the end, who deserves the glory? God gets the glory. And the joy of ministry is not that we give ourselves glory, but we're able to turn around and serve this great God who redeemed us, changed us, sanctified, and transformed us. And we're able to make him look good and give him glory. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for the, well, the rebuke of scriptures. And, and I thank you for the transparency of the disciples who allowed us to hear of this needed rebuke for them. Because they knew that millennia from then, we would need to hear it as well. And Father, I confess all the times when um, I have twisted ministry into a means of giving me status and for my glory at the expense of yours. And, and Father, I know I'm a work in progress. And I know that's the same for so many faithful brothers and sisters here where they do ministry. But I pray that you'll help us to purify our intentions, that our goal will be to give you glory alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.